Let's pray. Lord God, as we have just sung, I declare, and I think we declare, that we need you to awaken hearts and bring people to life as if they were dry bones that came alive in a deserted place. Lord, we express dependence upon you to work through your word in us, to do a thing that you do often, which is to restore people to a relationship with you through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. And that, Lord, you would even take believers who know you from a state of apathy to one of joyful service and sacrifice through the truth that you convey through your word, through the gospel of your son, Christ. As we have sung, I again ask you, would you do that this morning as we continue in your book, the book of Judges? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are nearing the end of our journey through the book of Judges. Today we're going to look at chapter 20 and see how it factors into this last narrative of the book that we've been considering. Next week, Drew Regan will help prepare our hearts and our minds for both Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday as he's going to be preaching from John chapter 11. And then in two weeks, I'm going to finish our exposition of the book of Judges as we will see Israel with no king but with the anticipation of a king to come in chapter 21. In fact, chapter 21 is going to connect right in with the king who entered Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on Passover Sunday. Now, if you remember from last week, we began looking at this final narrative in Judges by considering chapter 19. And if you recall, it was a dark, hard-to-hear accounting of a ghastly deed that happened in the land of Israel. It is one of the most gruesome and sad events that you will ever find in Scripture. And as we have been seeing in our walk through this final narrative, this all came about because of the mindset that the people of Israel had adopted, a no-king mindset that relegated God and His authority to the back seat and instead left God's people driven by their own heart passions and lusts. In chapter 19, we saw that no king living led to societal corruption with a perverted sexual ethic and even the egregious abuse of women. Well, today in chapter 20, we see that this no king mindset results in inner division and even bloodshed. And the ironic thing about chapter 19, as it was just read, is that in this chapter we see so much unity throughout. The overwhelming majority of the Israelites in that day unified together here around an important cause. Even the Benjamites unified to protect one of their own cities, despite how heinous the actions of that city of Gibeah had been. But what we don't see is a collective unity throughout all of the tribes of Israel to obey the mission that God had given to His people Israel. We do not here see them coming together to finish the task that God had called them to perform, to bring His judgment down upon the pagan, rebellious, 
idol-worshiping nations in the land of Canaan. He had given them a call. He had given them a mission. They had not obeyed it. Well, in chapter 20, we do see a unified holy war, but it is not the holy war that they ultimately should have been fighting. Instead, it was one they had to fight against their own brethren. Scholar Daniel Block writes, The holy war that should have been waged against the Canaanites was directed at one of their own tribes. Today, I want us to see three kinds of unity in chapter 20. I want us to see a sad unity, a bad unity, and a regal unity that is made possible for those who look to the king. A sad unity, a bad unity, and a regal unity. So first of all, let us see the sad unity in the first 13 verses of this text. Notice how the tribes of Israel came together in these verses. In verse 1, it says, All the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost point in the land of Israel. Beersheba was the southernmost point in the land of Israel. What the author is saying is that all Israel, top to bottom, all of the people, they came together from the whole land. In verse 1, it also says that the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. So they were unified as if they were a collective whole, one man. In verse 2, it says, And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves. So collectively, all of the leaders of the land, they came together as one. Verse 8 says, And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. And then notice very carefully, very carefully verse 11. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And look at verse 12. And the tribes of Israel sent throughout all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? So what we see here, right at the beginning, the author of Judges is making a very important point. What we see here is an important and necessary unity, but it is a sad unity. Israel has finally come together. All of Israel, each of the tribes, save Benjamin, has come together for a unified purpose. But the reason for the gathering is a sorrowful one. For they are gathered together against their own brothers. In fact, the author of Judges is strategically helping us see the sadness by his regular reminder that these Benjamites were their brethren, that they were their kin. In verse 13, it says the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Verse 23 says, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the same idea is conveyed in verse 28. And my friends, if you just think about this for a minute, of what this would have felt like for them in that day, I think you'll grasp this. This was a sorrowful time. This was not a happy moment. This was north versus south kind of sorrow. This was Benjamin against the Israelites. This is brother against brother. Now realize 
the reason for this sad unity here. In verse 3 of chapter 20, it says, Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, speaking to the Levite from chapter 19, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, verse 4, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah arose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, and I cut her in pieces, and I sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So the city of Gibeah, a city of the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe that was part of the nation of Israel, had performed a tremendous, awful, great evil. As the Levite had said, it was an abomination and an outrage in Israel. Going their own way against the Lord, the leaders of Gibeah surrounded the house where this Levite was staying. They attempted, if you recall, to rape him, but instead ended up raping and murdering his own wife. They did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, and to them, abuse seemed like the right way to go because it gratified their evil desires. This is what roused the people of Israel in chapter 20. This is what brought them together. This is what has forged this sad unity. It was good that they came together to deal with the sin, but that did not make it any easier. It never does. Please understand, my friends, this is how Israel should have responded. Listen to the words of the law of God that he gave to Moses to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says, verse 2, If there is found among you with any of your town that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or that woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or that woman to death with stones. When godless, idol-following Heart-driven evil occurred in Israel. The people of Israel, please understand this, my friends, they were to do something about it. Usually this would have been isolated actions against individuals who, like the Benjamites, developed idolatry which resulted in heinous sin. But here in chapter 20, we see the fulfillment of this passage against a collection of rebellious people. In fact, it came against a whole tribe of the land. Notice the words of verses 12 and 13 here. The tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from 
Israel. Israel is here demanding that the tribe of Benjamin join with them, unify with them, in bringing God's justice down upon these guilty men who had committed the offenses that we sadly read about last week in chapter 19. They are asking Benjamin to unify with God's people against the city of Gibeah. They are doing the right thing, but this does not make it any less sorrowful. As you know, my friends, there are times when God's people have to say hard and sorrowful things to each other. Even today in the church, it is required of God's people to say, at times, hard things to brothers and sisters in Christ who are going after sin. And if they won't listen, we too have been given an important action item by God. In our case, it is church discipline. It is the church collectively saying, we're not sure you're a Christian. We have to remove you from the body until you repent and look again to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Praise God. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Sometimes God's people have to say hard things. Sometimes we have to display a sad unity. Sometimes God's people in God's church have to unify in order to say hard things to those who are in unrepentant sin. And sometimes this means there has to be a separation that the sinning individual might turn from their ways and be restored, which is the whole goal to get that brother or to get that sister back. So this was a sad unity happening in the land of Israel in that day. Next, I also want you to notice with me the bad unity. Did you know, did you know that not all unity is good? When people unify around a sinful attitude or perspective or errant theological position, it is a bad unity. Nations divide or go to war with one another. Families break up. Even churches split, often because of bad unity, because of tribalism that develops over sin. Sometimes people come together for the wrong reasons, and we certainly see this here with the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, when God's people allow sin to persist, it should not be a surprise when they get tribal and start fighting with each other. This is exactly what we see here. Now, I have already read from Deuteronomy chapter 17 and what God's law required. Benjamin should have given up these worthless fellows, it says, in Gibeah. They should have joined together with God's people to bring justice to the town. But instead, they actually sided with Gibeah and stood against God and against God's people. Look at the end of verse 13. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. How terribly sad was their bad unity. And note verse 14. 
Then the people of Benjamin, catch this, came together out of the cities to go to battle against the people of Israel. The condition of God's people has gone from bad to worse. Their no-king mentality has led them to this point, and here they are on the cusp of civil war. My friends, bad unity comes from bad desires, which leads to terrible conflict. The Benjamites wanted, they desired to go their own way. They wanted, they desired to protect their evil city. And they did not want, they did not desire God or the rest of Israel telling them how to live or how to conduct the business of their tribe. And this roused in them a fighting spirit, as our evil desires always do. This is at the heart of all sinful human conflict. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle and leader of the church of Jerusalem, he wrote these words in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When people choose their passions, their own desires, over the satisfying generosity of a good and gracious God, they begin to fight in order to obtain the object of their passions or to maintain the object of their passions. They fight to get and they fight to keep. Human beings fight because human beings desire. And when those desires are sought elsewhere, away from the satisfying presence of God, they lead to all forms of conflict and quarreling and fighting and even bloodshed. So, in verses 15 through 17, Judges 20, we see the forces of these two armies come together. Benjamin, they mustered 26,000 men, with an additional 700 left-handed stone slingers who came from Gibeah itself. They were a much smaller army, but they had this crack team who could launch stones from their left hands from a leftward angle, bypassing the armor the Israelite soldiers would have had on the opposite side and are able to kill many more Israelites than the Israelites could inflict upon them. But the Israelite forces, they were mighty indeed because they had 400,000 men who drew the sword. Valiant men, it says. So even though they had this crack team, it does look like this war is going to be a lopsided one, at least from the onset. Now let us witness the awful result of no king living. In verse 18, if you'll notice, the people of Israel, they went up to Bethel, which was where the tabernacle had evidently been brought for the occasion, and they inquired of God there, asking him, who shall go up first to fight against the people of Benjamin? They were essentially asking, which tribe should take the lead in this war against our brothers? And God's answer is unsurprising. He tells them, Judah shall go up first. Judah. 
Judah was the kingly tribe. The scepter of Judah, the scepter of Judah would be the scepter of the whole land. They would be the kingly tribe. As the patriarch Jacob said in Genesis chapter 49, as he prophesied, he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Jacob told us back in the book of Genesis that the kingly tribe is going to be Judah, hinting that from this tribe the king would come. In fact, both King David and the eventual heir to his throne, King Jesus, were both from the tribe of Judah. Now, back at the beginning of the book of Judges, this same determination was made by God that Judah would take the lead. So here we have this coming together of the beginning and here at the end of the book that Judah would take the lead. In Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. It is important to note that Israel, who had generally adopted a no-king mentality throughout their tribes, would now be led by the kingly tribe from whom the whole regal reign of God would eventually be enjoyed. They are not mentioned here by accident. He is using good writing to point us forward. But God, he did not allow this war to be an easy one for the Israelites. On two occasions, in verses 19 through 25, Israel met Benjamin in conflict outside the city gates of Gibeah. And on both occasions, Benjamin somehow routed Israel. It doesn't tell us how. Perhaps those 700 left-handed stone slingers of Gibeah had been most effective. We don't know. But first, on the first day, they killed 22,000 of the Israelites. And then on the next day, they killed 18,000 more men of the people of Israel. Now, my friends, that is a lot of Jewish mothers and wives who were left mourning when their sons and husbands did not come home. This is a sorrowful event. These were bloody, gruesome, painful defeats. And God, my friends, permitted all of this. In verse 18, he told them to put Judah in the lead, so he was encouraging them to go to this fight. In verse 23, after already losing once, God says to them, go up against them, and they go up against them the second time, and they lose more of their men. My friends, God knew exactly what would happen here. He knew they would be defeated and that many of their lives would be lost. Here we see God in complete control, bringing about his good and righteous will in the land. It seems, I think, fairly clear that the author of Judges is leading us to conclude that this bloody civil war was not simply a judgment upon Benjamin, but upon the entirety of Israel as they had been living in disobedience to the Lord our God. It seems this was God bringing his hand of discipline down upon his people, all of his people. But in verses 26 through 28, we see the Lord make an important promise. Notice verse 26, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up, and they came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Israel was in sorrowful mourning over their lack of success and their painful casualties that they had inflicted upon them. And the whole army went up and they wept and they fasted and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. They went before the Lord where his tabernacle was placed, where the high priest Phinehas was located. Phinehas could have been the original Phinehas. In that sense, if that's the case, then this whole event happened much earlier in, history, in the history of Israel. But I think probably better, this is Phinehas II, another priest who adopted the same name, who came from the same line many generations later. In any event, they came to the priest and they asked of God, if they should go again and battle against their brothers. And the Lord's response was clear and comforting. He said, go up, tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Finally, they had the promise. They would win out and the bloodshed would come to an end. Well, in verses 29 to 35, we see Israel victorious. If you didn't know the devastation and the darkness of this whole story, you might think this battle was kind of cool. It kind of is. They put men in ambush near the city of Gibeah while their main force was in the same position as the previous two days. And at first, Benjamin enjoyed similar success as the days before. But then they looked behind them and they saw that their city was in flames. As verse 34 says, the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And note who was ultimately victorious that day. Verse 35 makes it abundantly clear. It says, And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. This war was so sad. And this war was so unnecessary if they had just followed their king. But here we see their king himself bringing justice to his land. Well, from verse 36 until the end, we essentially see a recap of what happened. More details are given about the battle. And for time's sake, I only want to note the last verse of this chapter as it tells us something important about this battle. Verse 48 says, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. These are brothers. The warriors of Israel evidently lost all self-control and they absolutely devastated their brethren in Benjamin. They killed men and beasts. They burned their cities they essentially destroyed everything that they saw. This is Sherman's march to the sea. This is a path of utter annihilation. Well, we're going to see the terrible result of this in two weeks when we finish the book and we consider chapter 21. This will not lead to good things. For now, we see the results of both the sad unity and the bad unity in Israel in that day. And the result is terrible division and awful bloodshed. 
But if you remember, earlier in the message, I mentioned a regal unity here, a unity that's connected to the regal reign of a king. But where is this to be found in the text? My answer is, it's implied. This all came about because Israel had turned away from their God. They had abandoned their king, Yahweh. If you remember at the beginning of this whole narrative, the beginning of this last part of the book, in chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you recall back at the beginning of chapter 19, the chapter where the Levite and his concubine had this happen to them, Judges chapter 19, verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, the author is pointing this out again and again and again. This is all about them not having a king. They did not want him to direct their lives. They did not want God to direct their families. They did not want their king to direct their tribes. So they went after their own eyes, after their own hearts. But even in our text today, we see hints of God's kingly rule when Judah is enlisted as the leading tribe for the battle. Israel had rejected God as their king. But God mercifully, graciously, lovingly would work even through this. For out of the tribe of Judah would come a ruler and a king who would lead his people in peace. As many years later, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, verse 7 of Isaiah 9 says, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is foreshadowing this for us. He's pointing us towards that. And this fall, when we take up the book of Matthew, we're going to see the king come in all of his splendor. And if we know him today, we can have his peace in our hearts. And one day, he's going to come down and his feet are going to step on this earth again. And he's going to say, no more war, no more pain. And he's going to be the victor, the champion, and king over it all. The author of Judges is building the anticipation of this for his readers. He is saying, yes, Israel has evidenced a no king mentality, but the king is coming. This is what he's trying to tell us. My friends, people of Riverside, the king who has now come provides the foundation for our unity together. We have, if we'll accept it, a regal unity. We enjoy a unity that is a kingly unity. In fact, the awesome humility of our king is what will make us press into each other rather than pull away from each other when conflicts arise amongst each other. Notice with me the book of Philippians. It's page 921 in your pew Bibles. We're going to end here today. 
Philippians chapter 2, again, page 921, if you're using a pew Bible. Notice with me what Paul says about Christ and him as king and what that means for us as a church with all of our opinions, all of our different personality traits, all of our yearnings. Notice what he tells us this means for us. Philippians 2 verse 1, if there, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul wants the Philippian church to display joyful Christian unity. Even though they've all got a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different views and perspectives that they've brought into the church. He's telling them all, all of that stuff set to the side and have one mind in Christ. In verses 3 to 4, he exhorts them to look to others rather than to themselves. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this unity is not the kind of unity where we just don't talk about the things we don't like with each other. It's not the kind of unity where we hold a grudge against each other. It's the kind of unity that says, I love you because Christ loves me, and I'm going to give up my rights for you, my sister, for you, my brother, because I love you, and my interests are no longer the most important thing. God's are, which means yours are going to be before my own. This is big living. This is a big change from a no-king mentality. Now, in verses 5 to 8, he gives them the key to this unity. He tells them how to unlock this unity. He tells them how to have this unity, which is by having the mind of Christ. In verse 5, he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God," did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, God's own son, loved rebels. He loved sinners. He loved people like you and me to the point that he was willing to surrender his rights, come to earth taking on flesh, God becoming a man, living a perfect, sinless, law-obedient life in a way that neither Adam nor you and I could ever do. And he went to the cross obediently, shedding his blood, surrendering his life in payment for your sins 
and my sins. And then triumphantly, as the king of all ages, he rose again after three days as the victor. He has done this. And this, this message, this humble, loving, self-sacrificing example, this mind of Christ is what we follow. When you want to hate, when you want to insist on your own opinion, when you want to assert yourself, when you want to be rude, when you want to be abrasive, when you want to pull back because someone has said something or done something you don't like, we look to Jesus and say, he came for me and I've done all kinds of things that I've said and done that he hasn't liked. We do that. Gospel-centric living. Looking to the Christ of the gospel to live our lives. And notice God's perspective about this son of his. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. This sounds like king language. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does God the Father think about God the Son and His willingness to obediently go to the cross and humble sacrifice for you because of our sins? He says, that's King Jesus. Follow Him. Follow His example. We have a King who has humbled Himself. Therefore... We must humble ourselves before each other. No king living leads to societal breakdown and ethical corruption, as we're going to see, and terrible division. But king living leads to the king's people living in unity. That's what it does. My friends, I exhort you to strive for this unity by aligning your attitudes and your perspectives and your minds with the mind of of the king. And that doesn't come easy. That means you've got to abide in him. It means you've got to lean upon him. It means you've got to go to him daily because we still got the flesh that we're battling, the flesh that wants to say, no, I want it my way. This church is going to be done my way. And yet the king tells us, no, let's do it my way. In fact, he says, you must follow my way. Oh, let us see the significance of this. Let us turn from our sins. Let us get into the word. Let us pray together. Let us evangelize and disciple each other. Let us build each other up in Christ in every opportunity that we can, that we might all of us collectively have the mind of Jesus Christ and be unified together. And as we heard shared so well this morning in Foundations, that our unity might shine bright to a world that needs us. Oh, the myriads of people who were here yesterday and will be today and throughout the week, they need a light just a little bit to the west. They need a, they need a light just a little bit south of Main Street. They need someone that's going to tell them, my friend, you're a sinner on your way to hell, but the great God and Savior Jesus Christ has paid your price and you can be forgiven. And my friends, there's one condominium that's almost done. There's two more that's coming in on the end of Sims Park. People are going to be moving right in where we are. And we have the message of the king to take to them. So let's get going. 
Let's do this thing. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we just are so thankful that you have given us not just the commands to be unified together as your people, but you have given us the power. You have given us the ability through your spirit, and you have given us the message, the thing that we must keep upon our minds if we are to accomplish this. And it is a great truth. It is an awesome key. Lord, help us as a church to keep our minds directed towards what your son Jesus has done for us. And as we remember this now in symbolic form, I pray that you would have these truths sink in deeply into our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name.